Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for July 16th, 2017. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Amy Jacks Dean, co-pastor with Russ Dean at Park Road Baptist Church. Her sermon today is entitled, One is the Loneliest Number. by Three Dog Night in 1969. You know how it goes. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. There are a couple of other lines in the song, but for the most part, the song goes like this. One is the loneliest number. One is the loneliest number. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. And then that theme gets repeated in the next line. One is the loneliest number. One is the loneliest number. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Nilsson wrote the song after calling someone and getting a busy signal. He stayed on the line listening to the beep, 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 beep tone while he wrote the whole song. Now you can see maybe why there weren't a lot of words to the song. The busy signal then became the opening notes of the song. Now, for all of you young people out there, including some young millennials, it used to be that when you called someone, if they were already talking to someone on the phone, there would be this sound like beep, beep, be, be indicating that the phone was busy. There was no such thing as call waiting. You couldn't put someone on hold and now allow another caller through. It's crazy talk, I know. In 1968, if someone called you while you were on the phone, when you hung up, there was no indication of a missed call. I really don't know how we survived. But Nilsson was inspired to write one from the rhythm of a telephone busy signal that just left him hanging on with no connection. And Three Dog Night made it famous by crooning this tune that still rings in our ears today. Perhaps it was so popular making it to number five on the Billboard's Hot 100 in 1969. Perhaps it was just so popular because it spoke volumes for our need for connection. Someone requested a sermon on aloneness. I'm pretty sure that someone is not here. Nope, I take it back. The person is here. I glanced up, they're sitting in a different place. Someone requested a sermon on aloneness. And this is really, has been a different kind of sermon for me to 
prepare and to write. And when we put the preaching schedule together for the summer, I didn't think through that I would be with 150 third through fifth graders 24-7 the week before this Sunday, home long enough just to wash the clothes before heading out with 400 sixth through 12th graders 24-7 this coming week. I have not had enough alone time to even be able to think about anything, much less contemplate a spiritual response to aloneness. But when I finally caught some alone time Friday night and Saturday to really give some thought to this beyond just the broad strokes I had already contemplated before last week hit me, I realized that I wondered if the person was asking about aloneness or was the person asking about loneliness? Aloneness or solitude can be a beautiful thing. And that's why I included the poem on the front of your bulletin about how sol what solitude has to teach us. Read it later if you haven't read it. For those for whom their worlds are so bustling and busy, much can be learned from some good quality alone time. But let's face it, some of the busiest people we know are often quite lonely. Loneliness has little to do with how many or how few people are surrounding us. Perhaps the loneliest people of all are actually the folks that are constantly surrounded by lots of people and lots of activity. And yet the case can be made that some of the healthiest people among us, even the ones surrounded by lots of people, know how to use their times of aloneness in healthy ways. So I'm having to venture a guess that the sermon request perhaps was more about loneliness than aloneness. Because aloneness can be a very beautiful word. Loneliness, not so much. If I miss the mark, you can tell me and I will pick it back up another time and try to hit the right mark. But that word aloneness led me to loneliness, I think in part, because I see lots and lots of loneliness in our world. I see it on a global scale and I see it right up close and personal. And I could have picked hundreds of texts addressing this issue, each one reassuring us that we are never, ever alone, that God is constantly with us. The prophet Isaiah showers us with an image of, in my opinion, a mothering God who created us and formed us. Those phrases remind me of the way the psalmist put it, for it was you, God, who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Isaiah reassures us that God calls each of us by name. You are mine, says God. When you pass through the waters, when you walk through the fire, I will be with you. And this beautiful and poetic text is all the reassurance we would ever need that we are loved and never, ever alone. You are precious in my sight, and I love you. And then, at the end of that passage, like a mother hen, God promises to gather up all of her baby chicks 
From the east and from the west, I will gather you, bringing my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth. As I read and reread this most familiar passage, I caught a glimpse that not only is God with us all the time, but God has created us to be in community, connected one to another. Why else would God go to all the trouble of gathering us up if we didn't need one another. If we were built to be alone, why have us so intimately connected to each other? This past week, in my intense lack of aloneness, the children studied the creation story. And they learned that it wasn't just one story, but in fact, we have two very separate creation accounts. These beautiful poetic renderings that try and explain how in the world the world came to be. We, of course, have accidentally taught the children how to meld the two very distinct stories into one conglomeration where somehow the serpent and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was created on something like day three. That didn't happen like that. But in looking closely at these creation accounts with the children this week, I was again struck that God's culminating act of creation was humanity. And in both accounts, we understand that we were not made to be alone. We were created for each other. And of all the hundreds of texts I could have chosen, I went straight to what is known as the Great Commission. It's the very end of Matthew's Gospel. This is the all-important missionary go-to text. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it's this passage that has led many to far, far away places to tell the good news of the Gospel story. And I think we've been very mesmerized by the going. We've been so focused on the commissioning part of that that it's easy to overlook the very last thing Jesus says to us from Matthew's telling. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. You are never, ever alone forever. That's the good news of the gospel story. So why is it that so many experience such loneliness? It is a healing balm, no doubt, to know and feel and believe that God is always with us. But in the creative genius of God, God must have known that that would not be enough. And hence, humanity was created and not just human. One human would never be enough. Perhaps God knew before three dog night sang about it, that one would be the loneliest number. And so God built us for connection and community. A leading researcher in loneliness, yes, there are people that have dedicated their lives to just that. 
a leading researcher on loneliness in the field of social neuroscience at the University of Chicago, John Cacioppo, says that loneliness affects our brains just like hunger, thirst, and pain. Hunger is triggered by low blood sugar, which motivates you to eat. Thirst propels us to find drinkable water to quench that need. Pain gets our attention to take care of our body. And Cacioppo says that loneliness triggers our brains just like these other biological necessities to find connection. Except sometimes, he says, we numb this trigger and retreat into our own seclusion instead of doing the very thing we need to do to overcome our loneliness. He says when we grow hungry enough, our brain will force us to eat. It's the same with thirst. And with pain, we will do all in our power to alleviate pain. And he suggests that we should treat loneliness with the same kinds of solution. When our brains indicate loneliness, he suggests volunteering for something that we are passionate about or making a visit to a nursing home. That moment that you feel loneliness, just like that moment that you feel hunger and you go for food, the moment you feel loneliness, you should go for connection. Now, a social neuroscientist may never add this to his TED Talk that I watched, but if I were giving his TED Talk, I would say, when you feel lonely, you know what I'm going to say, go to church. Hello, that should have been pretty obvious. I can't think of a better place to quench that thirst, except the problem is when you're feeling the most lonely, this is the last place people want to come. Because guess what? Everybody here acts like they're fine. You're not fine. You're carrying burdens. You're grieving. You're scared. You're lonely. I guarantee you, within four people of you, someone is battling intense loneliness. So people don't show up here because they think everybody else has it together. We all don't have it together. Certainly not all the time. Now this takes his solution, and mine too, going to church or going to visit somebody or volunteering for something, anything that will throw you into connection with people, this takes tremendous energy. Just like the early cave dwellers had to scavenge for food, and just like our extensive system for purifying our waters, satisfying our loneliness will not come easy. It will take intentional effort, and it will take a heaping dose of vulnerability. And it's this word, vulnerability, that led me to rewatch a TED Talk I have watched many times before. If you have not read her stuff or watched her TED Talks and you struggle with loneliness or you know someone that does, let me suggest that you take 20 minutes and listen to Brene Brown talk about this subject. 
Now, there are all kind of voices out there right now, especially women's voices, who are gathering quite a fangirl following. Rachel Held Evans, the Momastery blogger Glennon Doyle Melton that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and Lamont, I am her fangirl, I'm not going to lie. And Brene Brown are among these women that have quite the following right now. I don't hang on their every word, except Anne Lamont, I do. But Brene Brown is no doubt onto something in her research, her research, like dedicating 15 years of her life to researching vulnerability. She says, so where I started was with connection, because by the time you're a social worker for 10 years, what you realize is that connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is what it's all about. It doesn't matter whether you talk to people who work in social justice, mental health and abuse and neglect. What we know is that connection, the ability to feel connected, is why we are here. It's neurobiologically wired into us. She says when you ask people about love, they will tell you about heartbreak. She says when you ask people about belonging, they will tell you their most excruciating experiences of being excluded. And she says when you ask people about connection, the stories they tell are about disconnection, loneliness. And in her research, she ran into the one thing that unraveled our ability to connect, and she says that that was shame. Brene Brown has made a living off of the words shame and vulnerability. She says about shame that all she can tell you is that it is universal and we all have it. And it is our shame that keeps us from being vulnerable enough to connect. She says that the only people who don't experience shame have no capacity for human empathy or connection. No one wants to talk about it, and the less you talk about it, the more you have it. Shame, that is. What underpinned this shame, this I'm not good enough, which we all know that feeling, she says, I'm not thin enough, I'm not rich enough, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not promoted enough. The thing that underpinned this was excruciating vulnerability. This idea that in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. We're not good at that. We're good at acting like we keep it all together. And when we can't pull that off, we retreat and we stay home. In all of her study, she separated out the people who had, seemed to have a strong sense of love and belonging and connectedness. And what she discovered in all of her scientific research was that people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe that they're worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believe that they are worthy. 
That's all it takes to feel connected. She had to go to therapy to get through all of this, by the way. She said that the people that allow themselves to name their shame and be vulnerable find ways to connect and that that is the only cure out of loneliness. She did say that what those folks had in common was a sense of courage to risk being vulnerable. They had also the compassion to be kind to themselves. And then that propelled them to be kind to others. And it turns out that we can't practice compassion for another if we can't treat ourselves kindly. But she says the last thing that gave them a sense of connection was that they were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they are. So after listening to a bunch of TED Talks and then returning to the prophet Isaiah, it dawned on me that we could look at the prophet Isaiah all day long and read those beautiful words over and over and over again. God who created you. God who formed you. God who called you by name and said, you are mine. You are precious in my sight and I love you. Those words mean nothing if you don't let them sink into your very being. They are just words. But the prophet spoke on behalf of God, just as Jesus did in the Great Commission, to remind you of who you are, beloved child of God, period. Person of great worth, period. And when you can truly hear that and stop playing the negative tapes you have memorized about yourself, that will be the first step out of loneliness and into connection and community. I can think of no better place to start than at church. May it be so. Amen. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. 
Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you.